first reading today is from Homegoing by Ghanaian-American novelist Ya Gyasi. This passage describes a young Ghanaian woman raised by white Christian missionaries trying to make sense of Christian teachings. Akua used to tell the fetish priest that the more she learned about God from the missionaries, the more questions she had. Big questions like, if God was so big, so powerful, why did he need the white man to bring him to them? Why could he not tell them himself, make his presence known, as he had in the days written about in the book with bushfires? Or dead men walking? Why had her mother run to these missionaries, these white people out of all people? Why did she have no family? No friends? Whenever she asked the missionary these questions, he refused to answer. The fetish man told her that maybe the Christian God was a question with great swirling circle of whys. This answer never satisfied Akua. And by the time the fetish man died, God no longer satisfied her either. Our next reading is a passage from a letter that Austrian poet Rainier Maria Rilke wrote to Franz Xaver Krupas, a student, who wrote to him seeking advice about writing poems. Rilke refused to critique any of Krapus's poems, but he offered advice about how a poet should be in the world. I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. And our final reading is a piece of the speech given by Polish poet Wyslava Zimborska when she received the Nobel Prize for Literature. And any knowledge that doesn't lead to new questions quickly dies out. It fails to maintain the temperature required for sustaining life. In the most extreme cases, cases well known from ancient and modern history, it even poses a lethal threat to society. This is why I value that little phrase, I don't know, so highly. It's small, but it flies on mighty wings. It expands our lives to include the spaces within us as well as the outer expanses in which our tiny earth hangs suspended. If Isaac Newton said to himself, I don't know, had never said to himself, I don't know, the apples in his little orchard might have dropped to the ground 
like hailstones, and at best, he would have stooped to pick them up and gobble them with gusto. Had my compatriot Marie Curie never said to herself, I don't know, she probably would have wound up teaching chemistry at some private high school for young ladies from good families and would have ended her days performing this otherwise perfectly respectable job. But she kept on saying, I don't know. And these words led her, not just once but twice, to Stockholm, where restless, questioning spirits are occasionally rewarded with the Nobel Prize. First, thank you all for these great questions. There is no way I will be able to answer them all in the next 35 minutes. The front of the service ran pretty short today, um, but I shall do my best. So, in your opinion, who has been the most important writer in Unitarian history? And has this meant that he or she is also the most important leader? So I would say the most important writer in Unitarian history is Ralph Waldo Emerson. He mostly lectured and then it was published later, so if we want to get technical, maybe he's not actually a writer, but we read his words in books, so close enough. But he, um, before him, Unitarianism was firmly in the Christian tradition. It was sort of a, a different Christian denomination with some particular views about Jesus, but after him, it was not. It was much more expansive. There were a lot of other ways to be Unitarian. Um, the word for his philosophy was transcendentalism, and it was really about going out into the world and knowing God firsthand through your experience, not learning about it from an old book or from a preacher who told you about who God is. And, and that's profound. That, I think, is a, except for the, you know, his, he believed in the existence of God, and we debate that, but we still agree that going out into the world and is the, one of the main ways we find truth. It is not found necessarily in an old book or in what I happen to say on any given Sunday. And the second part is he or she also the most important leader. He, he left the Unitarian Church as an institution. He, he was a minister and um, left in part because he could not lead the communion ritual with integrity. And so he then went off to be a lecturer and a writer and a poet. And so I think he was... He was extremely influential in our movement, but was not, not a leader of our movement, if that makes sense. He was sort of an outside agitator, um, bringing us along with him, but not shaping the, the institutions of our tradition from the inside. Um, 
what are good ways to respond if my child comes out to me? So tell them that you love them and that you support them and that there is nothing about who they are that will make you love them any less ever. Those are good ways. Other good things, assuming this is a, a child at home, someone that you, that you are actively parenting, um, there's probably some internal stuff that this stirs up, whether that's, you know, you had your daydreams of how their life would unfold or you worry about the discrimination or challenges they might face. And you need to find some people to help you do that work and work through that so you're not putting that on your child. Uh, out front is a really good resource for that. Give them a call, PFLAG, there's other groups in town. Uh, also, make sure that your child has some great um, adults in their life who share whatever the identity is that they're coming out to. And hopefully all of our kids already have people and adults who are trustworthy and wonderful of lots of identities in their lives. But if your kids don't, make an effort to bring some people into their lives. So it, it can be a little awkward, but I've, I've known people who are in my life who are gay and bisexual who've had the coworker say, so my kid just came out and I realized they don't actually know very many gay adults. Can we have you over for dinner? And it's awkward. I mean, it is tokenizing, and, and not everybody will be excited about that invitation. But a lot of people also view that as a sacred trust. And so making sure they know that being out can mean a lot of different things, whether that's through people in their lives or in media or in other things, is important. But the most important thing is to keep loving them and support them and ask how you can show that support and what they need. Um, does everything happen for a reason? I say no. I think this world is too chaotic and heartbreaking for there to be a reason behind everything that happens. Um, and I think when we try to figure out a narrative arc to things that don't necessarily have a narrative arc, we can do a lot of damage to people who are in pain. They can get pretty close to blaming victims for what has befallen them. Um, but this is one of the great religious questions, so lots of people have lots of different answers to this, and I think it's, we could do a whole sermon series around this one, but my, my core answer is no. The world just seems too too random and too awful for it to be there to be a reason and a cause behind everything that happens. What is the role of worship for children? So we know that children themselves are already religious. They don't learn to be spiritual beings by coming to church. That is not what we're teaching them in our way. We're teaching them stories and tools and ways of being in the world. And, and children need a chance to worship. They need a chance to, to sing songs, to have ritual, to 
be part of something that feels a bit bigger than them, just like adults do. I think the need for worship, whether that's you know, saying grace before a meal or what we do here, is, a, is close to a universal human need, definitely not everyone. And so our children need worship. And we're starting to have some conversations about what that might look like and how we might do that differently. And, and how do we meet developmental needs? Because developmental needs are different at different points in the lifespan, so worship might look different. But children need that moment to come together. And at least for me, part of worship is remembering that I'm not the center of the universe. We don't have to agree on what is, but we can agree that none of us individually are it. And, um, and be in a community that supports and encourages our growing spiritually. What does the UU belief system say about sexual assault, i.e. Larry Nasser and forgiveness? So I, as all of this has unfolded, and I think I said this in a sermon two weeks ago, the thing that keeps coming back to me is, is our first principle as Unitarian Universalists, we believe in the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That every person should be treated with care and love and respect. And so that means everyone should be treated with care and love and respect. People should not be victimized in the way we keep hearing about over and over and over again in the news. Everybody, everybody is precious. And where it gets harder is how do we approach the perpetrators? So this is the, probably the spiritual dilemma that I will, one of the many spiritual dilemmas that I will be wrestling with for my entire life is what does it look like for, to be in a world where Larry Nasser to have inherent worth and dignity? And what does that call, what is, how do we live that value? because I cannot see his humanity at this moment. I hope I get there someday. It would help if he showed some repentance. Um, And so we believe in the power of forgiveness. We are a church, an institution, a tradition that believes no one is defined by the worst thing they've ever done, but also that people need to work to make it right. And that Forgiveness is not something that should be offered easily. It's not cheap grace. It's not, it needs to be, needs to be made right. And so I don't, I wish I could give you the step-by-step how, what that actually looks like. But I'm hoping in this wave of accusations of all sorts and prosecutions and everything that is happening in this moment, we will see some perpetrators or some alleged perpetrators show us what it looks like to make it right? Because I need that model right now. I don't, I don't have that in my head yet. But I know that everyone involved has inherent worth and dignity. And that is hard, because I just want to lump some people as bad and, and beyond redemption. But that is not what our faith, as I understand it, calls me to do.
I have heard you call yourself a panentheist. How do you define that? What are its differences from pantheism? What is its appeal to you? So pantheism is a belief that God or the holy is in everything, that everyone, everything, everyone is permeated by this piece of the divine. And panentheism is, in, is a newer theological term that means that, that God the holy is in everything and is something more than that. So the, way, the best ways for me to describe it is it's, is in metaphor. So it's like how we are our bodies and we are more than our bodies. There is something beyond what we are physically that makes us who we are. So for me, the holy, the divine God is in everything and then is also something else too. So there's the physical and the, and a sense of spirit. And um, why does that appeal to me? It's I mean, like any religious belief, it's not as though it's in a catalog and I picked it out and tried it on and it fit. Um, it has just been how my experience has evolved and what has felt most true as my experience changes. So, so everything feels like it has a little bit of holiness in it. And there are moments when I experience the divine as something transcendent beyond this physical realm that we know. And so that's why I call myself a panentheist. Although I don't use that word a lot because nobody knows what it means. And so I have to do this whole speech after that. Uh, but it is, it is how I understand God. Would two services be the same content, or, for instance, one with traditional music and the other with contemporary music. So as I, I think it was early, a couple months ago, I, I stood up here and said, I think we need to think about adding, adding a service here. And, and this conversation has been unfolding, and there's a team leading it, and please come next Sunday after the service to sort of hear how the process and the, and the study is working on this. And so I would say, I have no idea what the answer to this question is right now. Nothing has yet been decided. There's a lot of different ideas that people on the team are, are toying with, and we need your ideas. So if, if we decide that we need to have more room in this room, at least from 1045 to to 1110 when the children are in here, there's a lot of different ways to solve that problem. And I'm sure lots that the team putting this together has not even considered yet. So, so it is possible that we could have two services and they could be different, but a lot of other things are possible too. So I invite you all to, to engage this conversation. There's going to be a presentation next week and then some small groups and surveys and all the other ways. Um, but it's a... It's a challenge before the church, and we need everybody's ideas to figure out how to, how to navigate it well. I enjoy attendi attending the services, 
but I feel pressured to participate in the church community more than I want to. Is there a place for me here? I sure hope so. Um, I think especially with the last question as we contemplate growth and other, and other ways of being as a church, that means that, that there's lots of, I mean, and at this size, there's lots of different ways to engage the church. So there are the people who are here more than I am, really running all kinds of programs and committees and things. And there's the people who come once in a while on a Sunday morning or once in a while to an adult RE program. And all of that is valid. We like to make invitations for people to get more involved because sometimes it can be a little murky how to do that if that's something you're looking for. But please say no if that is not what you need from this community, not what you have time for, not where your energy and commitment is. And if people are, are pressuring you in, in rough ways because you're not on a committee, let me know. Because um, that's not who we want to be. Do you believe in ghosts? So, I think I'm agnostic on this question. There's a, a lot of people that I respect who've had experiences that they understand as ghosts or as you know, communications from someone who was recently deceased. And I trust that those experiences are real to some extent, at least in their experience and I have not had an experience like that and so I don't think I oh yeah so I don't know that's my question I invite you to discuss this one in coffee hour I would love to hear this conversation um, what are your favorite and least favorite parts about being a minister that's a good question um So I think the favorite and, and least favorite can be similar in that, in that people trust me with their stories. And when that's you know, in the context of church life and you know, we're having a good, powerful conversation and someone tells me that story from their heart, it's really beautiful and feels really precious. Um, when that's someone I'm sitting next to on an airplane and I really want to sleep, it's not as favorite. There's sort of a, I mean, ministers joke about whether we, we tell people what we do when we're out in public, or do we just say we work for a nonprofit, or is there something we can, we can say that's like, just sounds so boring that no one will ask a follow-up question? Because, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that when you say what you do, at least a lot of people then assume that you're trustworthy and can listen to them and, and will listen with empathy. And sometimes it's really exhausting. Um, another least favorite part, especially when I'm meeting new folks, is um, you know, if I've been talking to someone for a little while and then it comes out that I'm a minister, they do this like calculating to figure out, oh, did I curse? Did I say something that was rated PG-13? Did I, like, what did I do? 
because of this, because that's what a lot of people think a minister cares about, which I don't, but it's this funny moment where I, I say, I'm a minister, but, and then I say, but I'm a Unitarian minister sometimes, and that sort of undercuts, if they know what that is, and then it's a whole ball of wax if they don't. Um, but sort of that like school marmish thing that gets projected on me that I care about if you cursed in my presence, which is not something I usually care about. This is a great question. I would like more community in my life, but I also kind of dislike people. (laughs) How do I reconcile these things? That sounds like it will be a lifelong struggle. Um, But I think some of it is maybe finding the right people whatever those people are. And, and in, I know for a lot of people, finding, finding folks in online communities or in other non-traditional communities can help because if you're interacting via a screen, it, sometimes the, uh, the annoying things or the things you dislike are not as present. I don't know what the, what the specific things this person dislikes are. And I also know that when you make an effort and, and get to know some folks, Sometimes the things that you dislike fade. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they fade as you jump more into a community and you can recognize what you're getting from the experience, even if you kind of initially dislike them or dislike aspects of of the group or whatever it, it is. But that's hard. I think we're all searching for community. And there's a... I was talking with a college chaplain this week, and she told me that that her students, the students she serves, both really want deep community where they feel you know, known and seen and recognized and want to be anonymous. And you can't, like both of those, you can't do that. That's not how it works in the world. And so I think you need to pick one to some extent and lean into it and see what happens. And I hope you pick the more community, not the dislike of people. Without talking about heaven and such, how is a good way to go about comforting a young child who has lost a loved one? I think affirming whatever it is they're feeling is a good place to start. So, so grief with young children comes out in all kinds of different ways. It can look like behavior regression or anger or sadness or you know, lots of worry about if other people are going to die, um, lots of anxiety about other small things, and, and just saying, that's okay. That's what you're feeling and and we're all feeling sad and sometimes when we lose someone this is what our emotions and our bodies do is really important I think it's really important to affirm how much 
the loved one loved the child and they still and the child still carries that love with them and i think you know ask depending on the kid's age talking to them about about how how they want to remember them like what are giving them chances to tell stories about the loved one or to look at the gift that the loved one gave them and put it in a special place or things like that and and coming up with special rituals so what is it you do when that beloved person comes to mind and how do we hold on to their memory and what's important about them and and no and i think also reassuring the child that you know if you can do that with integrity if other people in their life are doing pretty well health-wise that that other that life is not as tenuous as it might seem so that other people are not going to leave them like that at least for a while um, is important reassurance because often when a young child loses someone they love they fear that everyone else is going to die right away too and to be able to say that is not going to happen is important and and this is a a longer conversation so if somebody the person who's who's working on this wants to talk to me i have some good resources about different age groups developmentally and how they deal with death and other losses that i'd be happy to pass along Could we get people to pick their top five songs and compile a list of songs we sing that are favorites and sing them with gusto? So about a year ago, we did a year ago, maybe two, maybe two, approaching two years ago, uh, Susan Mordek did a music survey here of what people like and dislike, and you all were all over the map. So I think if we asked everyone to pick their top five songs, there would probably be five times however many people are in this room um, or approaching that songs on the list uh, because I think it was a third of the people like classical and classical variations and traditional church music kind of stuff a third of the people like folk music types of things and a third of the folks preferred rock and pop and that kind of stuff and then a smattering of world music and other things around the edges too. And so as we, as we plan music here, when we sit down in our meetings once a quarter or so and start picking hymns, we, we make sure we're upsetting different people every Sunday. <laughs> so, um, so if, you, if someone out here, there can figure out how to get everybody to like the same five songs, we would love to do that and there are ones that we know are favorites and i appreciate when you let me know which ones you like best or the ones that don't work as well that we pick sometimes because it is useful to get the feedback but we also know that it is one of the joys and challenges of of our community that has so many different thoughts and views on things is that it is impossible to do anything that will make everyone happy at the same time so we try to just rotate the disappointment. And if you feel like 
you've been sitting in the disappointed place too much, let me know and we can try to rotate it in a different way. But that is, that is really a Unitarian Universalist challenge with all of, of, all of who we are and how do we, how do, we do this. Is religion originally to control the masses or inform the masses? I think yes. <laughs> I mean, religion is one of the most powerful forces that we have in the world. And because it is so powerful, it is used in terrible ways, in controlling ways, in manipulative ways, in violent ways, and in life-giving, just justice-seeking, um, powerful, powerfully positive ways. And and I think it is constantly moving back and forth, depending on the community, the time, the context. And so I don't know. I think originally it was trying to make sense of a world that did not make sense. I think it was an attempt at information in its most original form, an attempt at understanding, a trying to put a narrative around a world that is totally chaotic and confusing, a trying to figure out how do you, are there ways you can act that will help the world make more sense. And I think pretty quickly, people figured out it's also a means of, can be a means of control. Because if you tell someone that they have to do that to be a good follower of whatever tradition it is they follow, or that there is a divine being that wants them to act in a certain way, it's a pretty powerful coercive technique. So I think we need to, it's something I think about a lot, especially as a religious leader, is how do we, be religious? How do we be a religious institution that, that moves towards the informing, liberating, justice-seeking way of being religious and not the controlling, coercive, oppressive ways? Because they're both, they're both right there and easy to do. We often hear and read about faith and Unitarian Universalism. How would you explain Unitarian Universalist faith? So for me, faith is my commitment to the things that I can't know for sure, that are not known by scientific ways of knowing, that are not known through direct experience, that are not known in all of those ways we, we often learn or know things that you can't read in a book. So as I talked about our, our commitment to the inherent worth and dignity of every person earlier, and that's not a scientific precept. That's not a... Um, something that can be researched and known, but 
for me, it is a, a truth that informs my life. And so for me, that is taking something on faith, is I know that I am a better human when I orient my life around that idea. I know that I act with more care and more compassion. And so there are all the, and I think all of us have those things that we know, but we don't know from science or research or those ways or or direct experience necessarily. Um, My favorite example of that is how we know when we're in love. Like you can't run a study on that, but you know it. And that's what faith is. Those things that we know, for me, that we know in our bones, that we often struggle to articulate, that we often can't quite figure out why we know them, but we know them, and they, and they make our lives better when we act out of those convictions. So I have one final question that I will, I'll work with today, and the rest, check your March newsletter, probably the April newsletter, maybe the May newsletter. There's so many great questions, um, a lot of which require more care and thought than I can really get into right now. So thank you for them. Maybe a future sermons, we'll see. Um, so this question is, do you like hugs? And the answer is, I do like hugs. I, I usually don't initiate them just out of respect for other people's bodies and knowing that not everybody else in the world likes a hug. But if you would like to hug me, please come and hug me. Okay? <laughs> and I think it's always good to ask people if they like hugs before you hug them. Because some people don't like to be touched. Some people have, have physical limits that can make hugging painful or have other, have other things. So... Thank you for this question. Thank you for all of these questions. This has been a good, hopefully enlightening for you, definitely enlightening for me as I try to put words around things. And we are going to sing again.